All right. This is uh, a great Sunday for many reasons. And one is that Dr. Tim Elmore is with us. I remember the first time I ever heard him. I was sitting in a parents meeting over at Perimeter Church in Duluth. And before he even finished talking, I went, I said, like, I'm going to beat the crowd. I bought every book, eight-track tape. I bought it all, everything that you sold. Seriously, I did. I still have them, and I have resourced them because I'm, I'm like you. I love the next generation. And um, I, that night is when I was like, I, I would love to get to know that guy. Years ago, a friend, mutual friend of ours had set us up. We got breakfast at JR's Barbecue, but that was 20 years ago. And uh, then when you were here in January at Kairos, when Brian Porzio was preaching so wonderfully, I said, Brian, you got to connect me and Tim. Tim has spent time with our staff this summer and um, helping us develop leadership systems and pouring into our staff. And it's an honor to have you. Tim is a prolific writer. Recently, he was with all the NFL head coaches in the same room because they're pulling their hair out going, how do we reach? How do we coach this generation? We yell at them, intimidate them. They don't do the things that their fathers and big brothers did. And they brought him in as an expert, probably the leading expert, to help effectively reach and develop leadership potential out of this next generation. And so, Tim, welcome to Restoration. Would you help me welcome Dr. Tim Elmore? You're something else, buddy. Appreciate you. Thank you. You may be seated. My gosh. <laughs> I feel like I better be good after that. Um, can I just say something before I say something? Is that all right with you? Um, you know this is a very unusual and special place, don't you? I know that's probably why you're here. If you're new, yeah, this, you're right. This is a very, very special place. I have thoroughly enjoyed every minute worshiping God, listening to you, laughing with you, not at you, with you. Um, I love the both of you. We haven't known each other much, but um, so fun to hang out. Thanks for the honor. I'm honored to be in front of you. I really am. So, uh, in fact, I think I'd like to pray one more time. Is that all right with you if we just do that? God, we just ask you now, continue to settle in on us. And I pray something would happen today that couldn't be mustered by human ingenuity. Uh, give me the right words and thoughts. And I pray you'd help us today to, to eat the fish and spit out the bones but help us to re-fall in love with the next generation who will stand on our shoulders. So we thank you in advance for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen. amen. So I am going to talk about the next generation. I don't consider myself some sort of expert. I love the favor that God's given us. We're in front of companies and football teams and baseball teams and I feel like a 12-year-old little kid in there, but I think it's because these men and women are trying to figure out what in the world's going on in culture and in our brains and particularly the people that are under 25 years old. So this is our topic, providing life-giving leadership to Generation Z. And I thought it might be fun to start with a pop quiz. Don't you love that idea? Oh, I can tell the passion's exuding from you right now. So you know they're on TikTok pretty much, right? So I'm going to let you decipher some TikTok language from Gen Z, see how hip you are, okay? So on the screen, here are a number of terms off to the left that they would be using. That is Gen Z, middle school, high school, college. You've got one minute to decipher them. You cannot look these up, but you can partner up if you want to decipher. You got one minute? Here we go. 
Good. I thought so. Yeah, yeah. They're engaged. Yeah. <laughs> ten seconds, ten seconds. Okay. Your time is up. Time's up. All right, let's let's see how well you did. Um, I know we have young and old in this room today, so the younger may be a little bit more hip than the older, I'm just saying. But um, I'm gonna walk through these one by one. You can grade your own papers, but just shout it out if you know each one. So let's start with the top. Take several seats, what's that mean? Yeah, <laughs> okay, somebody got it here. So it means you want somebody to calm down. But you know we live in a day of hyperbole, don't we? Everything's all caps, three exclamation points, so you can't just take seats. You gotta take several seats, all right? No cap, what's that mean? Yeah, that's right, it means you're not lying or exaggerating, okay? Bop. Yeah, good, yeah, it means the song you really think is good. Left no crumbs. Yeah, you guys are good, I, but of course you are. It's the youth group up there, all right? It means you did something really, really good. You're, 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 you did a good job, okay? Stan. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, so Stan means you're a huge fan of someone. So it's actually a cross between stalker and fan. I'm not a stalker, but I'm more than a fan. I'm a Stan, okay? Um, living rent-free. <laughs> Somebody at the first service said, my child. Uh, um, so it means you can't stop thinking about something. You might say that song is living rent-free in my head. I like to say my wife is living rent-free in my head. Huh? By the way, my, do you mind standing up? You don't want to stand up. This is Pam, the better half. Do you mind standing up? <laughs> Hundo P. Yeah, 100%. Just a short word for 100%. Okay, the last one, drip. <laughs> Pastor said the anointing is dripping. Okay. Um, it's actually a core 20 cents of style. Now, is anybody in this room as old as I am? The term drip when I was in high school was a derogatory term. Does anybody remember that? You would say you're such a drip. No, I'm not, you know, that sort of thing. And now we've gone full circle and now it's very positive. So I feel good when people call me that. Okay, um, let's take a quick survey. Did anybody in this room get all of them right? Okay, yeah, good. Couple of you, but only a couple of you. Would anybody raise your hand and say, I have no idea what we just did the last 60 seconds of this <laughs> worship service. Yeah, yeah. So I gotta admit, I'm probably older than you are and I love this question I'm about to pose to you. It's on the screens. Do you feel the disconnect? Do you feel the disconnect? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we have today, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. So what I'm about to share with you is gonna feel like a doctor's appointment. We're gonna first do a diagnosis, what's happening in culture, how's it impacting kids today, who by the way are among the best kids I've ever seen. I started teaching students in 1979, so this is my 44th year. 
But uh, it was the late baby boomers coming through, then the Xers and the millennials, now it's Gen Z, and then the alphas. But I'm telling you, I believe in this next generation. But they are growing up in a very funky culture right now. Would you not agree? It's just fuzzy and gray, and it's, it's very difficult to navigate. I don't think I'd want to be a kid right now. But if we lead them well, they may become the greatest generation I think our nation's ever seen. Yeah, I really believe that. Uh, so fun to watch Sumner. Get rid of Sumner. I don't know if Sumner's still in the room, but I've never met you, Sumner, but I already love you, okay? So um, much of what I'm going to share is from a book I did just a few years ago called Generation Z Unfiltered. What I did in this book is I uncovered nine challenges that kids face today that we did not face back in our day as grown-ups, okay? So let me begin right now with a couple of stories. Call them case studies of this emerging generation. They're pictures of what you'll see in Generation Z. So the first one is a picture of Virgil Smith. I first heard of Virgil way back, I don't know, four or five years ago. He lives in Dickinson, Texas. Four or five years ago, he was in the eighth grade. And one night, he was playing video games at 2 a.m. That's what eighth graders do. With his friend Kashan, who was not in the same apartment, but in the same apartment complex. So they're playing together. And at one point, both boys hear a loud sound outside the window, like a clap outside the window. So both boys scampered over to their front window to see that a storm was coming in. And they both assumed, well, it's a storm, but it's probably not that bad. Well, these guys were wrong. It was Hurricane Harvey. Do you all remember that? And this, they were right outside of Houston. I mean, it swept in. Before he knew it, young Virgil was up to his knees in water. Water was gushing in and filling the apartment. Crazy. But I love how Virgil responded. He didn't wait for a grown-up to do something. He didn't wait for permission from an adult to do something. Virgil grabbed his phone. Of course he did. And then he grabbed his mother and his older sister and ran them upstairs to a second floor where they would get away from the rising waters. I don't know about you, but to me, that's an act of heroism in itself as an eighth grader. But it didn't stop there. When he gets up to the second floor, he gets a call on his smartphone from Kashan who says, Virg, we're drowning over here. We need help. Well, once again, Virgil springs into action. He didn't wait for his mom to do something. He doesn't wait for permission from mom to do something. He runs right back downstairs into the flooding apartment he lives in, grabs an air mattress that he slept on at night, and uses it as a raft. He paddles over to his friend Kashan, saves Kashan and his family. Act of heroism number two, but it wasn't over. You can imagine as he's paddling back and forth, he hears, he hears the cries for help from other people in the apartment complex. So Virgil kept at it almost all night long, paddling back and forth. According to the police report the next day, Virgil Smith saved 17 lives that night as an eighth grade kid. He won a gold medal from the mayor, I think, and, and his mother was praised for raising such a fine, brave young man. Don't you love stories like that? Well, there's a bunch of them. I mean, Gen Z feels very, very empowered, probably by that smartphone, that they know what to do. And he did it. The other story is a little more sad. Um, in fact, probably more common as well. This is Haley. Haley was a 16-year-old when I first heard about her. If you would have followed Haley on Instagram, you would have thought she was the happiest girl in the world. She posted about the food she was eating, the friends she hung out with, and the best vacation ever that she just took. But it was only a veneer. 
on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, inside she was a festering crockpot of angst, just mental health issues, panic attacks that she hid, um, depression. Um, and one day her body was found. She wasn't dead, but she had tried to complete suicide. Her mother and father rushed her to the emergency room and they saved her, but they were shocked that she was struggling with this mental health disorder, as many moms and dads are shocked. Her classmates were surprised. They thought, again, she was the happiest girl in the world. But you see, oftentimes, you know this, don't you? Social media is a veneer that covers what's really happening on the inside. So I would suggest to you these two stories are really students that are on the spectrum of Gen Z, one on one side, one on the other. You probably know most teens, do you not? They're somewhere between Haley and Virgil. Would that be accurate? But I think they're pictures of the two biggest realities that impact Gen Z. And you need to walk out of this room knowing this. Two huge realities. Generation Z's world is marked first and foremost by a high sense of agency. You know what that word means, don't you? It means they think they can do it. Uh, the word free agent means I'm on my own. I can do this. So there's a high sense of agency. Think of Virgil who didn't go ask a grown-up what needed to be done. He felt like he knew what needed to be done. And for some reason, this 13-year-old boy did it. Look for more and more and more of this on sports teams, in classrooms, at home. Sometimes you'll think it's just cocky on their part, but maybe, but maybe I, they just feel like they can do it because they've been reading this smartphone ever since they got it. The second reality, though, is a high sense of anxiety which Haley represents. And by the way, don't these seem oxymoronic? How can you have high agency, high anxiety? Say, yep, that's the weird paradox that faces Gen Z. High agency, I feel like I can do it. High anxiety, I feel like I desperately need help to do it. And not to oversimplify, but as I look at data and I interact with tens of thousands of kids each year, I think both of these were fostered or deepened by the smartphone. I think I can do it because I got a smartphone. I'm terribly anxious because I have a smartphone. If you're on social media as a teenager, if you com uh, uh, consider social media and all the other voices coming at them, you're consuming 10,000 messages a day. I don't know about you, but I don't think my brain was hardwired to take in 10,000 messages a day. So let's look at this generation of kids, okay? Fasten your seatbelts. We're gonna do a wild ride over the next few minutes just to help you understand and wrap your arms around who Generation Z is, okay? So I thought it would be fun, first and foremost, to compare and contrast their generation with yours, okay? Don't you think that sounds like fun? So on the next slide, I'm gonna show you part of a chart that's in the Generation Z Unfiltered book. Um, in the book, I point out the fact that there are six generations still mixing it up on a school campus, or maybe in a church, or maybe at a family reunion you just went to, okay? Here they are, this yellow ribbon across the builders were the oldest, the Gen Alphas were the youngest, but let's look at them real quick, okay? So the oldest generation around, by and large, is the builder generation, or the silent generation. They were born between 1929 and 1945. My parents are both part of that generation, okay? They were called the builder generation because they built so much out of so little. Look at the years they grew up. You had to be resourceful and resilient. Great Depression, World War II, okay? After the builders come the baby boomers, 1946 to 1964. I'm a baby boomer, okay? Uh, boomers were called boomers because <laughs> nine months after World War II was over, there was a boom of babies, okay? It's a biology lesson for you right there. In case you missed it, ask your neighbor. 
uh, nine months after World War II is over. You see where I'm going with this? So 76.4 million people were born in America in one 18-year period. That had never happened in our country before. And because it was such a large generation called the pig and the python, it's like a, a big lump going through the python after we sw- swallowed a, uh, a pig, this was a huge demographic that affected everything for the last 50, 60, 70 years, okay? Um, after the baby boomers come the baby busters, or what you commonly know in gen- as Generation X, right? Okay, I'm gonna do a survey in just a minute to see who's, who's who in here. All right, so Xers in the room, you know your generation is the X generation or Generation X because way back 30 years ago, you told the media, we don't want to be called anything. We're the X generation. That's exactly how you said it too. But social scientists first called your generation as you came of age, baby buster. And do you know why? Because the first year of your generation's existence was the public introduction of the birth control pill. So instead of a boom, it was a... It was a bust, yeah. In fact, if you add on top of that Roe v. Wade in 1973, you have a shrinking population, not a booming population. It was millions and millions and millions less kids, and that affects the economy. It affects enrollment in school. It affects church attendance. It's, it's all over the place, but that's what you had. After Generation X comes Generation Y, or the millennials. We've been throwing these people under the bus for 15 years. <laughs> Please forgive us, millennials. I, we, we know not what we do, okay? So they were the, basically the people born in the 80s and 90s. Some social scientists date them ending a little earlier, a little bit later, but it's basically the 80s and 90s. Uh, Pam, both Pams and my kids are both millennials, okay? After Gen Y, or the, oh, by the way, they're called millennials because they'll spend their entire adult life in the new millennium, the 21st century, okay? And then comes the Homelanders, or Gen Z, which, were, which started right about the same time as the Department of Homeland Security, so it's been a funky last 23 years. Would you not agree? With 9-1-1 and the dot-com era bubble bursting, an economy that keeps going up and down like a roller coaster, mass shootings. Did you know we've had more mass shootings in our country this year than we've had days in the year? I don't know if I'd want to be a kid today. I think my biggest worry in middle school was, where's my baseball mitt and how do I find a girlfriend? And they're thinking about stuff way bigger. I was just talking to Gwinnett County high schoolers they said to me in a focus group, yeah, Dr. Tim, when, he, when we hear a loud pop in our school, we're sure it's a gun going off. We all duck. And I'm going, how sad to say we duck when we hear a loud noise. Anyway, such is life. So that's Gen Z. And then the youngest children today, Gen Alpha, so after Z comes A in the Greek alphabet, so they would be the kids that are now being born. Many of you are young parents. You're about to have a Gen Alpha grandchild, another one, okay? So um, that would be the generations that probably would be here at this church. Now, I didn't do this in the first service. Give me 60 seconds. I want to find out who's in the room. Are there any builders in the room here? Okay, they're taking a nap. They're taking a nap. It's okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's probably not fair. I'm so sorry. Boomers in the room. Boomers, raise your hand. Yay. All right. By the way, boomers, aren't we still glad we can raise our hand? We're just glad to be here, baby. All right. Xers in the room. Yeah, lots of Xers. Yep. Yeah, Xers, you're now the heart and soul of the workforce, okay? And you're so modest about it, too. Okay, good. Uh, just kidding. Millennials in the room. Yay. By the way, Millennials, you're now the largest generation in the workforce. Uh, I just talked to a young a, a, a CEO that said, I, can, I just got to wait for those Millennials to get out. I'm saying, no, sir, they're taking over, 
They really are. Yeah. So, and then Gen Z. Yep. Send Gen Z. Good. Glad you guys are here. Excellent. Good. Uh, and then Gen Alphas would probably be in the nursery right now. Or those, yeah, okay. All right. So I'm going to speed this up. I'm so sorry I'm taking so long, but this could be fun and it could be great lunch conversation. So if nothing else, consider it fodder for lunch conversation. Let's talk about the life paradigm that each generation carries with them as they go from childhood to adulthood, okay? As they enter their careers and go from backpack to briefcase, what's the narrative they have based on the first you know, 20 years of their life that were shaped by shared technology that was released, shared tragedies that happened, shared songs and TV shows and, and, and everything else, okay? We're, people work like wet cement. We're shaped like wet cement in the early days and then we kind of harden, true? And just like it takes a jackhammer to break up that sidewalk years, some of you, it takes a jackhammer for you to change. You can write that down. J-A-C-K-H-A-M-M-E-R. All right. All right. So let's look at the builder generation. The narrative they had, by the way, I had so much fun talking to these builders. Their life paradigm was, be grateful you have a job. Somebody help me teach this. Why would I say that one for them? Yeah, the Great Depression. My dad's, a, both my mom and dad are part of this. My dad was born in 1930. So the first 10 years of his life were the Great Depression. The next five years, World War II. So I can describe them to you, but you could probably describe them to me. Grateful, right? Frugal, resourceful. Say the wrapping paper at Christmas, we'll use it next year. True? Rubber bands, plastic bags, save them. Put them in the attic, we'll use them. Don't throw them away. Okay? All right, boomers come along. I gave us boomers the life paradigm. I deserve better because boomers felt entitled to a better life than mom and dad had had. It was a time of expansion, not depression. We're done with that. Shopping malls were popping up everywhere. McDonald's was franchising, and so was Chick-fil-A and everything else. It was an amazing day, okay? Extras come along, <laughs> extras, you're gonna love this one. You know what I gave you after I talked to you, a bunch of you? Keep it real. <laughs> now, so you saw the optimism of earlier years, but look at the years of your childhood. By the late 60s, America was in turmoil. Not only was the Vietnam War going on, it was on television. And there were protests back and forth, anti-war, pro-war. But we'd hear Walter Cronkite at six o'clock talk about the, and we see footage of it on the news. And even though LBJ in the White House kept saying everything's fine over there, we started seeing footage that said, it's not fine over there. And then he had the Watergate scandal. Now you had a Democrat and a Republican both lying from the White House. Does this sound familiar? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But um, I'm just kidding. But I'm telling you, Xers, you were just children back then, but you looked up at a generation of adults that were pretty skeptical, not going to blindly trust a leader anymore. You grew up as a generation a little more cynical yourself, didn't you? Maybe not you, but your peers. A little cynical, a little jaded. All right, millennials come along. Millennials, I gave you the life paradigm. Life is a cafeteria. Now, here's why. I'm not throwing you under the bus. You'll go, yep, that's us. So in the same way that you go to a cafeteria and you grab your tray and you go down the line and you make up your meal tailored for your taste buds, mixing and matching, these young professionals are making almost every major decision of their life as if it were a buffet. You already knew this. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, Pam's and my two kids, 35 and 31, both millennials, um, they stopped buying compact discs to get their music years ago. 
Why would they buy a CD? There might be six songs. I don't even like on that CD. I, I get one song at a time for my own playlist on Spotify, Apple Music. It's a buffet. They'll make educational decisions this way. They'll graduate high school and go to two or three different colleges for one degree. One of them's overseas. <laughs> and you know this, don't you? For the last decade, you didn't have to choose a major. You could make up a major. We had an intern that made up her major. Poetry and clowning. Love it. You know, you, wait, what's, what's that? Can you monetize that? It's my passion. It's my passion. Okay. I'm sorry, millennials. I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. But it's the world that we're living in. Hey, I'll tell you what you will care about. They treat spirituality and faith this way. Take a little bit of Jesus, the ones I like. Buddha, Oprah, shake it together. I've made up my faith. There's no one true source, but you know, this God really likes me. But listen, millennials in the room, we're conditioned to think this way, aren't we? Kind of free agents. So now with Gen Z on our hands, this is a generation I love, I really do. Um, I interviewed middle school, high school, college, and some young professionals from Generation Z membership. And if I were to give one phrase that I felt like capsulized what they were saying to me. By the way, they were all so respectful, but they were really honest. The phrase I would give them is this, I'm coping and hoping. So I'm still hopeful because I'm young, but I'm just coping with this mess you all have created, grown-ups. We didn't really know what the heck we were doing with COVID. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. I'm so sorry, but... Nobody knew what they were doing. So looking up at adults that don't know what they're doing and they're going, can I fare any better here? The average age in Washington, D.C. is 78, 79 years old. I'm, I'm telling you, folks, I don't blame them if they're feeling a little <laughs> cynical like the Xers were. It's a weird time. So, like I said, they're hopeful, but their coping may not even be coping skills. We all need coping skills. Life's hard. It's coping mechanisms sometimes. Or they might binge on six hours a day of a video game because it's the only way they can make it through this mess. Uh, obviously, the alphas are so young, we don't know what they're going to bring with them uh, into, the, uh, into the working world. Okay, so um, let's, let's do one more category. They're going to move on to give you some quick, quick data. Attitude toward authority. Anybody think that might have changed in 100 years? Oh, my gosh. I see it all the time. Ugh. Uh, so my mom and dad's generation, respect them, right? You respect authority. For the boomers, it was replace them. <laughs> we just thought we'd take over, thank you. Uh, for the Xers, endure them. We've got to put up with these knuckleheads. Let's go get a Starbucks, you know. Uh, for millennials, it's choose them. Because remember, life's a cafeteria. So let me show you the agency they have. About 13 or 14 years ago, I was on the University of Georgia campus talking to undergrads about the topic of mentoring. And it was very common for me to hear from these college students, well, Tim, yeah, he's my professor, but he's not my mentor. And what they meant by that is, I have to take this class, but I'm choosing the people that I let pour into me. There was that sense of agency. Now, for Gen Z, again, they were so respectful, but I'm telling you, different birth. These kids not only grew up with a cell phone, they grew up with a smartphone. Um, I, I think the right answer as I listened was this. Not sure I need them. Think about this. I just talked to a high school senior that said, Dr. Tim, my teachers are obsolete. 
That sounds horrible to a teacher, but you know why they'd say that, don't you? I can look up anything you say in this class. Why do I need you? So listen, they don't need us for information anymore. They need us for interpretation. Let me help you make sense of all that you know, okay? Now for alphas, I talk to teachers and parents to get these five-year-olds, six-year-olds, you know, their opinion. But I'm telling you, you know what I'm hearing more and more? Because these kids have been on a tablet since they were four. Question everything. Get ready. If you're tired of why, hang on to your hats. Okay. Now, I want to show you one quick thing from this chart, and then we're going to move on. Look back up at uh, life paradigm and go left to right with me. History is so interesting. I think it's kind of like a pendulum on a grandfather clock that swings back and forth as each generation responds or reacts to the previous so look at this. The builder generation over there to the left was a generation of caution. Baby boomers, generation of confidence. Xers, back to caution. Millennials, back to confidence. Gen Z, back to caution. Interesting, huh? So 15 years ago, you might have needed to say to a millennial high schooler, now, Josh, wait a minute, you might not be the VP of the company when you're 23. To a Gen Z, or you might need to say, give it a shot, Austin. You can do it. It's in you. Because I'm hearing from high schoolers these days, not only FOMO, fear of missing out, but FOMU, F-O-M-U, fear of messing up. There's an inordinate amount of fear about making a mistake. This is going to go on my transcript. I'll lose the scholarship. Somebody's going to post this accent I had in the lunchroom or whatever. So again, it's just a different day than it was for me. So rapid fire. I want to give you, I was trying to think, how can I summarize the data? I think this might be helpful. If you're taking notes or making mental notes, I want to give you seven words that define this generation. It spells the word foreign, so it's going to feel foreign to you. The letter F in foreign reminds me about this generation of kids. Um, they're very fluid. Their sense of identity is very fluid. Their sense of gender identity. I didn't say I like this. Don't kill the messenger. But folks, listen to me. A nationwide survey of 16 to 24-year-old young adults. Only 48% of Gen Zers claim to be heterosexual. Purely heterosexual, male or female. The other 52% somewhere in between. I'm not saying I liked it. I'm just saying it's an incongruency. They're wondering. I mean, every teenager wonders who they are, but this wondering is far bigger today than it was when I was growing up. Um, O is overwhelmed. They're absolutely overwhelmed. And who would blame them? They're consuming so much. Some of it irrelevant, but they're consuming so much. So you need to hear this. 94% of university students in America say that the number one word they use to describe their life is the word overwhelmed. 94%. 44% or almost half would say, I'm so overwhelmed it's difficult to function. Almost half. And nearly one in 10 has thought about suicide in the last year. Now, perhaps they didn't pull out a weapon, but it crossed their mind. It might be easier to end it all than to face what I have to face. And you know what we do way too often? I'll admit I'm guilty. I want to look at them and go, that's what's making you, oh my God, that's the least of your worries in 10 years. That's not helpful. I've tried it, not helpful, okay? My wife has to curb my behavior because I want to say, let me tell you what I did when I was your age, sonny. Is anybody guilty of this too? Oh my gosh, you know, I got these stories to tell. They get bigger every year, my gosh. Okay, back to the word. The letter R is reinvention. So they want to change the world and you go, good, that's good. But when they say change, 
They mean something that when we say change. They come to their boss maybe or whatever and says we want to change. And the boss, if he were honest or she were honest, said, well, yeah, we'll, t- we'll tweak that. We'll tweak that. They go, tweaking is not enough. I, want a f- I, want a- I don't want a facelift. I want an overhaul. So when we watch the marching that went on, Black Lives Matter and others in 2020, some of our generation was out there, but mostly Gen Zers and millennials. And I think what they were saying, if they could have said it civilly at the time, was how could you let such injustice continue for this long? What's wrong with you? Sometimes I don't know what to say because it was marching when I was a kid too and it did a little bit, but not everything. Agreed? So I'm just saying not every expression they have is strategic and wonderful and constructive, but they're screaming at us. We need reinvention and you want to tweak it. All right, uh, next letter, E, entrepreneurial. I love this one. By the way, some of these are good, some of these not so good. This is a great one. Did you all know that 70%, 7 out of 10, public high school students in America want to be an entrepreneur? They would say, I want to start something, not join something. And part of that reason is, I see what you got me to join. I don't want to join anything like that. That's antiquated. I want to start something. Now, will they all be successful at entrepreneur? No, they won't. Neither was my generation. But the fact that they want it, how could this church create a, and entrepreneurship. So within an already established organization like this church family, we're letting startups happen and we're backing them up and fostering them, fostering creativity. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, Next letter, uh, I, independence. So millennials, in contrast, did everything in teams. They played soccer in teams, they school projects in teams, everything was together. We were building community in the 80s and 90s. Gen Z has been forced not only by the presence of a smart device, but COVID, they just were learning alone for a long time. And some, because it's easier to learn alone and you don't have the friction of relationships, you just stay alone. Well, let me tell you something. It's left them behind socially and emotionally. They're not bad. We did, it just didn't help. I'm so glad you guys came back and stayed with each other quickly. But listen to me. Right now, among Generation Z members worldwide, there is a pandemic of loneliness. As I look at the numbers, this is not just pastor speaking. This is a pandemic in every country that reports. They're lonely. So they might or might not be alone, but their interpersonal skills may not be there to even know how to start a relationship. I just talked to a high school junior that met a girlfriend online, dated her online, broke up online, never once met face to face. Yeah. Letter G is geek. Now, that's, not a, that's an old word, not a new word. But what I'm simply saying is they're very at home with all smart technology. If they're not, they're an anomaly. Most of Gen Zers are very at home with smart technology. In fact, does anybody have the same experience I do? Something goes wrong with your smartphone, you give it to your son or daughter. Can you fix it? Five minutes, it's fixed. And I'm in wonder. How did you know to do that? And they'll say, how did you not know? You know what I'm saying? Oh, my gosh. One more networked. That's the letter N in foreign. What I mean by that is 24-7, they are connected technologically, globally, all the time. I talk to moms and dads. They go, oh yeah, I tuck my kids in 10.30, say goodnight. They shut the door. They're not sleeping. Many, if not most, would say, I'm still on YouTube, still online. I got my phone or my tablet. Uh, the phones need to be out of the bedroom. In fact, I would suggest you have a basket at dinner time. Put them in a basket. Nobody needs to be looking at those dumb little boxes while we got each other face to face. That's just my opinion, but Chuck, give me a microphone so I won't say it, okay? (laughs) All right, 
So, um, so I just told you Gen Z is foreign. What do we do when we're in a foreign land? Let me just remind you. If you and I hopped on a jet and flew to China, Germany, Kenya, wherever, we'd be in a different land, wouldn't we? And you know what we do automatically? You do this intuitively. You hop off that plane and you're all psyched up to work harder to connect with people in that different land. You know why? They speak a different language. They have different customs. They have different values. Bingo. I need to psych myself up to work harder at loving, listening, and caring for. It's like a foreign land. And I'm the immigrant. They're the native. I'm the immigrant. They're the native. I hear bosses all like, well, they're going to have to grow up and get with the program. Yeah, they do. But you know how we do that? Start with empathy in order to get to grit. Start with empathy. They usually introduce, the younger generation, new norms in the workplace. So let's build the timeless virtues they're going to need. But we need to listen to them for timely. We got timeless insights. They got timely intuition about where culture's going. We need to be listening, not just telling. So there's a favorite verse I want to do before I go to maybe four or five answers. Is that, is that okay? All right. Good answer. <laughs> Here I am with a microphone. Okay. So... You won't believe this, but my favorite verse in the Old Testament is not yours. It's taken from 1 Chronicles 12. Who has a favorite verse in Chronicles? But um, in chapter 12 of the book of 1 Chronicles, you might remember, the writer is chronicling the tribes and clans of Israel, naming them by name, and then sharing the contribution or the characteristics, good or bad, of each tribe. When he gets to the tribe of Issachar, he says something so cool. Look what he says. First Chronicles 12, 32. And the sons of Issachar were men who, what are those next three words? Say them out loud. Who understood the times. In other words, when we look around and we don't know what the heck's going on, these people, they seem to get it. And I love the fact that he didn't stop it. Look what he says next. With the knowledge of what the people of Israel should do. That's been my prayer, by the way, for this morning. I prayed this morning, this prayer. Lord, help us understand the times and give us the insight to know how to lead them because they deserve good leaders. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? We feel out of the loop and, and we just get mad. You know what my goal is this year? I set a goal for myself, to turn my frustration into fascination. I wanna be, I wanna be fascinated. But the thoughts they have, all thoughts have reason. What if we listened and then said, we could fund that missionary. Let's get behind Sumner. That's what we need to do. I'm telling you, it's what, it's what we wished for when we were young. We need to be that for them. Okay, so the narrative is changing. Here's how I want to close. I want to close, remember I promised you a prescription. So um, I want to give you five words very quickly that engage Generation Z. In fact, these are best practices that we've gotten from parents. I do a lot of parent gigs. Schools, I do a lot of schools, high school, college, um, sports teams. And the coaches, teachers, and parents that do these things engage their kids or young people, and they're able to teach. So if that's your interest, stick with me. Five words. Here we go. By the way, you see the word prove is all in caps. I'm going to give you five words that spell the word prove. So everything I've said today, you can remember, and it will be on the test. Okay? Just kidding. All right. So the letter P in prove reminds me I need to start with a problem to be solved, not a curriculum to be taught. So you missed a good chance to say amen. 
None of us loved our teacher that said, now we're going to do section four of the textbook. Now, turn to page 67, if you will. Anybody like a class like that? You're dozing off. But what if your teacher said, you know, we got a problem right here in our community or maybe in Ukraine or wherever, but it's a real problem, not a hypothetical storybook problem. And in that real problem, we start getting interested in it all together. And you know, the thing you want to teach is going to be a response to that problem. And you know why that works? Because students learn just in time, not just in case. But most of what we teach them is just in case. Just in case you need this algebra equation, I'm going to share it with you now. Do you remember what you thought at that moment? Am I ever going to use this? Come on, didn't you? And if the teacher were honest, he'd have to say, no, not really, but you know, it's in the curriculum. What if everything you wanted to say, it started with a problem that this truth will solve? This is how Jesus taught. Fig tree goes, you know, goes, you know, <laughs> goes dead. Oh, let me teach you something about faith. Remember? He's brilliant. Stories, parables, problems to solve. Everything was just in time, not just in case. Students learn on a need-to-know basis. We need to create the need to know. All right, let's do another one. Uh, the letter R is relationships. Oh, my goodness. In every single one of my focus groups with these kids, no exception, they were all longing for relationships with grown-ups, but they didn't know how to do it, and they do have an attitude. They're teenagers. You did too, but I'm telling you, we get frustrated. They get frustrated, and then we go to our corners. So in focus groups, they would say things like, yeah, my teacher thinks she knows me. She doesn't know me. My dad, I think I got the wrong dad. I had a kid that said, I think I got the wrong dad. I said, what would make you say that? He loves my brother. He, 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 he didn't like me. Now, the dad would be aghast if he heard that because he does, but somehow all the vibes are coming out. He doesn't really believe in me. He believes in my brother. I don't know what to tell you except that if you don't have relationship, don't even bother teaching something. Every teacher here, if you don't love your kids, get another job. I would say that. And I know it's hard. I've taught too. But if I don't love these people, and if I don't learn something about them outside of the subject I want to teach, I'm not a great teacher. I may be a great explainer. Have you noticed I like to explain things? But if I don't have a relationship, are we not relearning this with our own adult children? <laughs> so here's an axiom I try to live by. We must build bridges Bridges of relationship that can bear the weight of truth. The letter um, O, improve his ownership. So far too often, the adults who are coaching, teaching, parenting are owning all of what they want. They own it. In fact, parents are prescriptive in the way they lead their children. Don't forget your backpack. Don't forget the quiz on Friday. Don't forget your grandma's birthday next Tuesday. And those are all good information. But they're going, okay, great. Mom owns my life. Teacher owns my life. She's teaching to the test. She'll make sure I score okay. We need to start giving ownership as they get older. Now, in first grade, not a lot of ownership. But by junior high and high school, I'm telling you, we need to start saying, this is your class. You own it. Don't rent this education. You own this education. And give them projects that they have to own. I'll tell you one thing that we do. My wife and I sat down with our son when he was a teen. And he was expressing great interest in acting. He'd been in community theater, and he was pretty good. I am a dad. He's pretty good. Um, but um, we sat down with him a number of times, and he was convinced he needed to move to Hollywood or Burbank. And my wife, for seven months, 
Seven months, moved him out and said, you own this, I'll be right here as your guide, but not your God. And Jonathan auditioned and got an agent and everything else. But you know what he learned out there? He learned a little ownership. In fact, the first thing he learned was, I don't want to be an actor behind or in front of the camera. I want to work behind the camera. I want to tell the story that's redemptive in Hollywood. Well, that was a great discovery. In fact, he also had his own personal encounter with Jesus in Hollywood. We tried to raise him well, but didn't he have a major encounter where sin abounds, grace does much more abound? All right, you get the big idea. Visuals. Uh, The letter V is visuals. Folks, images are the language of the 21st century, not words. In fact, I would imagine if you get a message from them on text or whatever, you're trying to figure out what the image means, aren't you? (laughs) Okay, Bitmojis, emojis, images, videos. All I'm saying is, how could you leverage an image or a metaphor to anchor the big idea that you want to communicate? I know there's a lot of other things you need to say that's not in a picture, but how could the picture anchor the big idea? So 20 years ago, I was writing the very first Habitudes book. Habitudes are images that form leadership, habits, and attitude. It's a way of teaching life skills to a next generation, but it's not a lecture, it's a picture. It's not a lecture, it's a picture. Don't you prefer pictures over lectures as grown-ups? So how could we do this? Habitudes, is, Habitudes has now been used by 2.8 million kids, but it started with me in conversations with my kids. I remember Bethany, my daughter, leading a little Habitudes group when she was in high school. All I'm saying is, use ours if you want, but use something that you go, that's like Jesus using a parable that we still tell today, 2,000 years later. Isn't that interesting? Okay, one last word, experiences. I believe we want to go right to the talk we want to have with them, don't we? Come on, it's easier to give a lecture. I think if we would find ways to create environments or experiences from which we dialogue, we get through. We remember experiences more than we remember talks, don't we? So real quick, I'll close with this. Um, When both of my kids turned 12, Pam and I both decided we want to create a rite of passage experience for our children. But before that rite of passage, where they're going to meet mentors and go places and so forth, I decided to let them choose a place they wanted to go, and I would fly with them and be there for three or four days just to have some father-daughter and father-son time. Well, my son, who's 31 now, this would have been when he was 12, um, I said, Jonathan, pick a place you want to go, anywhere, and I'll take you there. It dawned on me after I said those words, oh my gosh, he could pick Tokyo, you know, or I don't know, Nairobi, Kenya, or whatever, you know? Thank God, he chose Minneapolis, Minnesota. (laughs) Yes, he did. Yeah, well, there was a reason. There was uh, Mall of America, Camp Snoopy, the roller coaster inside the mall, and there was a show up there that he really liked as a thespian. So we fly up there, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We had a blast. Father, son stuff, we ate junk food and went on the roller coaster and had pillow fights and did stuff we never told his mother about. But on Monday... That was the day we were going to have some exchange. And that's where I had the experiments, the experience. So I said, Jonathan, we're not on any roller coasters today. I want us to drive in this rental car up to one of the 10,000 lakes up here in Minnesota. And I want us to spend some time together. Little did he know. So I parked the car in a small parking lot right across from a lake. And I said, Jonathan, I want to do something a little strange. I want to trade places with you. What? I want to trade places with you. I'm going to get out of this car and go over to the passenger side. 
You're going to sit behind the wheel and you're going to drive this car. He's a rule keeper. His first thought was, Dad, that is illegal. That is illegal. That's illegal. <laughs> so, Jonathan, we're not going to go out in the main roads. We're just going to stay right here in this little parking lot. But I want you to drive this car. The next thing he said was, Dad, Mom will not like this. Mom <laughs> will not like this. He literally said that. I said, does Mom need to know? I don't think so. I'm just kidding. I, that did not happen. I promise you. <clears throat> but it took me, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes to explain the steering wheel, the gear shift, the ignition, and the brakes, and the accelerator. I mean, there's a lot to learn. You remember when you learned to drive a car? Well, this kid's 12. But you know what? Kids learn on a need-to-know basis. He needed to know. So he really took it in. And then I remember when he first turned on the car. Men in the room, remember when you first, ooh, this is amazing. You know, this is amazing. And then I remember he started backing up to get out of the parking spot and drive. I mean, within minutes, he is doing everything he's seen me do. He's, you know, you know. Yeah, I mean, he's doing that. How did he do that at 12? He starts racing through the parking lot, screeching halt, diagonal parking, parallel parking. He tries everything over the next 15, 20 minutes until finally I said, okay, stop. You've done it. Good job. Let's trade places again. And when we got back to our original seats, I said, Jonathan, this is going to seem cheesy, but just go with me on it, okay? How did you first feel when you first got behind the wheel? He was honest. He said, oh, Dad, I panicked. I didn't think I could do it. What would you just show me? Oh, I guess I could do it. I said, Jonathan, that's exactly how you're going to feel becoming a man. You're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing. I didn't either. But it's in you. Your creator put it in you. And it's there before you know it. But you just got to test it. It's not a video you watch. It's not a talk you listen to. You do it. And that opened up a great conversation about how over the next few years his body was going to be changing. His view of girls was going to be changing. His view of his parents would be changing. Then I asked him one more question. I said, now, I just got one more question for you. What else did you know that made driving this car seem okay? He had to think for a minute, but then he goes, well, I knew you were right there. I said, exactly. And your father in heaven is right there. So drive your car. Be a, pa be a driver, not a passenger in life. You own this thing. You don't blame somebody else when you didn't get a destination you wanted to get to. But you got your heavenly father, and I'll be here somewhere for, for you to call. But you've got to drive that car. You drive your life. You own it. The last thing we did was I spotted a graveyard that was probably less than a mile away. It's one of those old 19th century graveyards that was up there. So we drove, I drove the car over to the graveyard. And I said, Jonathan, this is going to be really weird but I want you and I to walk through this graveyard. Now, it was daytime, so it wasn't freaky. But I said, let's just walk around the graveyard and let's just read, let's just read the tombstones. Let's see what people died here. So we start going around. We didn't know a soul, but we walked around, read the tombstones. But that set up an incredible conversation. We sat down on the curb. And folks, I got to tell you, I had the best conversation I've ever had with a 12-year-old kid, with my son, when we began to talk about how some people lived a long time. Some people didn't. Some people had really nice things said about them. Others, not so much. But then we began to talk about what sentence will we get by the way people watched, watch us live our lives. 
Not what do I say about me? That's awesome. What do they say about me by the way they see me live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Do you know why that was a powerful day? It was an experience. I didn't have a great lecture. He didn't want a lecture. But the experience is indelibly etched in his head. We talked about it recently. I'm just saying to you, what if we could use problems, the relationship we have, giving them ownership, using metaphors and visuals, and then offering experiences? I'm telling you, we will not only engage a generation, they're going to be able to stand on our shoulders and go way past where we want. Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay, I got to stop. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm just asking now that you would help us do what we just talked about. Holy Spirit, we need you to do it in us and through us. So help us now to know what to hold on to, what to give away. But Lord Jesus, may this church be an incubator for emerging generation leaders to go out to a mission field or a company, corporation, church, and, uh, and be part of just turning this world upside down. I put these people in your hands. God, finish the work you've begun. I pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Thank you all. Wonderful. Stand with me, will you? Brothers and sisters, we, we try to get in the spiritual diet, the menu that's served here, things that will help us be effective. In ministry, in a, and there's no ministry more important than reaching the next generation. And I just want to encourage teachers, coaches, children's ministry volunteers, youth ministry volunteers, parents in the name of Jesus I believe we are a church that is of the spirit of the sons of Iskar we're not shrinking back in this moment did you hear me like we're we're not overwhelmed with are we concerned yet yeah, but we're not overwhelmed and we know that God is for us and that he will be faithful to a thousand generations can I get a witness and so I want to encourage you I, I think I own everything you've ever written. And um, he's a contributor to several uh, monthly periodicals. I want to encourage you to follow him on Instagram, Facebook, and some of you builders on MySpace, you can find him there too, <laughs> I think. Um, but thank you. And um, I, just, I encourage all of you, um, even today when you pick up your children in the 200 building, love on those people who are serving our next generation. As a father of seven, three grandchildren and the number growing, um, there's 600 people in our church, 24 years and younger. That's a blessing, amen? A, and babies being born all the time. There's a boom happening around here because we love each other. We've been shaping men and they've been ministering to their wife. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. So may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious and generous to you. Every single one of you, individually, may the Lord lift his countenance upon you. May you have a real firsthand faith 
like your son has after walking through a cemetery, having real life situations shape him. May the Lord lift his countenance up on you and give you a real and lasting peace. Come on, say it. I receive it. God bless you all. Have a great afternoon. We hope to see you this week.